Hello and welcome to the Plasticology Project podcast. Conversations about plastic pollution and stories from inspiring people trying to make the planet cleaner. My name is Dr. Paul Harvey and I am the host and author of the Plasticology Project book. Thanks for joining me. On this episode of the Plasticology Project podcast, I speak with Taryn Johnston, founder of the non-profit organization Hennep's Revival. Taryn started Hennep's Revival in 2019 after a river cleanup with her daughter changed the entire direction of her life. Seeing the state of the water and the environment of the Hennep's River in South Africa left a lasting impression on Taryn and triggered a desire to do more. Since completing the first river cleanup in 2019, Taryn and Hennep's River Revival have removed 1.5 million kilograms of trash from the river in over 76,000 rubbish bags. Hennep's Revival runs off the dedication and drive of volunteers. Through their effort, the Hennep's River is slowly beginning to breathe new life. I caught up with Taryn via video call from her home near the Hennep's River, South Africa. Taryn, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the Plasticology Project podcast. I'm really looking forward to hearing about what you're doing in the Hennops River. I did pronounce that correctly, didn't I? Yeah, Hennops. Excellent. Taryn, about three years ago, you set up the Hennops River Revival in order to rid the river of plastic pollution and waste pollution more generally. Now, I've seen some photographs of the river pre and post cleanup on social media. I'm really interested to know whether this is something that uh, is recurring or is this pollution spontaneous and one-off events? It's ongoing, unfortunately. Um, So we do, at this point, it's more um, reactive stuff Um, as a result of when it rains and floods, you know, then more and more trash comes down, obviously, uh, from all over. Um, But, you know, from the beginning, we have like the huge poverty issues that are at the start of the river, or in the early stages of the river, big um, service delivery issues and um, waste disposal issues, and obviously, um, all together with educational issues as well. Um, and people not having the the means to to actually either dispose of their waste properly or understand what happens when they throw it away. Um, so a lot of the stuff just gets um, dumped at bridges, which cross over tributaries that all feed into the Hennops River eventually where we are. Um, so we're not we're obviously not at the source. Uh, we're working in an area where we live. And uh, we're like on the receiving end of quite a lot of, of the pollution. Um, but that's, I mean, plastic is only just one, one part. Yep. <laughs> um, obviously, we've also got all the industrial pollution and the wastewater treatment works that are also not working as they should be, mm-hmm. contributing to the water quality as well. So, you know, I'm, I always say we've got the easy job because we can see what we're picking out. You know, <laughs> yeah. as much as it is, you know, it's it's crazy. But when you know, when when you when you're addressing the water quality issues, it's not that easy to to just take the the chemical pollutants and the sewage out of our water. So, as an environmental scientist and somebody who has worked extensively with water quality issues throughout my career, I understand the challenges that are faced by those pollutants or those contaminants that we don't necessarily have the ability to see with the naked eye they're not prominent they're not obvious to us so sometimes we forget that they're actually there industrial pollutants are often invisible in the sense that you can't see them how do you think that impacts the Hennops river and is there a way to contain industrial pollution to limit the impact that it is having on the river? I think there's a compliance issue and an enforcement issue. So we've got all the regulations. We've got a beautiful constitution in our country, but we've also got a really big uh, compliance issue when it comes to our nation as a whole. 
um, very, very non-compliant group of people in South Africa, which is which is problematic because you know each one that's getting away with it is almost leading the next one to get away with the same thing. With each person doing what they want because there are no consequences or not reporting the person above them because they're about to do the same thing. Um, we've, got, we've got those issues. So the, you know, the, the regulations are in place. They're just not complied to. Is that a similar thing to the plastic problem as well and the solid waste, I suppose, you can call it issues as well, or is there a different um, controlling well, thing there? Look, um, we've got big service delivery issues when it comes to waste. Um, even the very minimum uh, waste um, services are not being met. So in your extreme poverty areas, even then your, your, your minimum waste um, service would be just a bag to dispose of your waste and, and that's not happening. So, um, although, I mean, even if they were beginning a bag, then what? <laughs> you just have a, a lot of bags of waste, you know, um, which aren't going anywhere. So the problem is that we've got a lot of um, informal settlements who, who receive no services uh, because the services only begin once you go into the registered informal settlement because then, you know, the, 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 the municipality is aware of them. Not that they're not aware of them, but um, in terms of, I suppose, the paperwork and the red tape. Um, so, you know, you're being met with a lot of people that are coming, it's, it's urbanization. You know, a lot of people that are just coming and setting up shacks wherever they can, wherever they find a space available. Um, and then you've got your people who are in your, your registered informals who receive a dustbin per household or per property. And then that person will rent out his property to another five or six families, none of whom have access to the dustbin or to the services that are provided um, you know, on, a, on a municipal level. Yeah, so you, again, all those people need to take their waste and put it somewhere. So there's a huge issue. There's a big gap somewhere. And uh, unfortunately, it's our rivers that take the knock for it. Yeah. It's interesting to hear you speak about the informal settlements here because it's something that I actually talk about in, in the book and in the context of Namibia and the informal settlements there. And mm. from my firsthand experience, entering into those informal settlements and seeing exactly what you've just said there, there is a half a dozen or more people in you know, what is essentially a single room uh, dwelling and... Mm. There's no, uh, there's no water, there's no municipal water supply, there's no municipal sewage, there's no uh, municipal waste collection, solid waste or otherwise. And so, as you say, it has no really where else to go but into the environment. In your case, it's the river. In Namibia, it's out into the, the, the plains, um, into the scrub. And it, it, it's very obvious. You can't blame the people that, reside in those settlements because what else are they to do they can't live in a pile of solid waste or other matter it has to go somewhere yeah. yeah and i mean i've seen what happens in an affluent area when we don't have services for a week or two the people go ballistic they start dumping their stuff all over the roads all over the streets and this is now you know people that have got access to services on an ordinary day um now, imagine not having access for your entire life. Yeah, absolutely. You don't have those services. They're just not available. So what do you do with your waste? Yeah. You know, and um, that's, uh, yeah, so that's, that's another issue, which, um, which is really <laughs> problematic because these people, and also living hand to mouth. You're living hand to mouth. You're not worried about what happens to your environment. You're worried about where your next meal's coming from. Absolutely. Think so there is this um, this urgency, which we're trying to convey to to a whole group of people, 
that are just not ever going to understand, um, you know, because their focus is not environment. And also, um, you know, I think that they, a lot of the times, feel so let down by the world that they end up just not, not really caring about the world. Let's touch on that a little bit more. Let's, let's dig in deeper to that because it's not the first time I've heard somebody say um, that communities are feeling let down by the world. And in particular, they feel as though the world is dumping more and more and more onto them in terms of, um, I use the example of Australia exporting plastic waste to Southeast Asia. Commentary um, from communities has often been that they feel as though they can't manage the waste that they already have, let alone that which gets dumped onto them from other countries. Let's explore that in, in your context a little bit more. Um, well, look, I mean, <laughs> so obviously the um, from, from, from my perspective, I think that the, the most logical way forward would be converting all the waste that we create and generate as humans should be converted into energy so that we can use it in another way, a more, more sustainable way, you know, creating other um, diesel, fuel, electricity, um, you know, something which is necessary for us, you know, in, in these times. And, um, and not just, I think we need to, you know, even move beyond recycling. And what I, what I realized about our country is that there's um, very little other than separation of waste that takes place, you know, and very little actual recycling. And, uh, you know, people are trying in pockets, but um, it's just, it's, it's not enough, you know. So I think we need to constructively use our waste and we're wasting we're wasting a lot of waste <laughs> you know and at the end of the day we're not going to be we're not going to stop generating waste either that is you know that's going to be continuing throughout and as much as well as much as it might seem idealistic to say you know like let's go for zero waste um in a country like ours like i explained that um, you know generally non-compliant um we would not be able to, I don't think from my perspective, I don't think that we would be able to go zero waste because we've got a very, very strong underground market. So even if we were to ban plastic and ban, we'd find a way. Um, South Africans are extremely resourceful. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, that, that can be used both as a plus and, and a minus. <laughs> um, but we can definitely come up with, with ways to do things which are not necessarily legal and um, that, you know, would, it would ensure that there continues to be plastic in our country because we'd find that loophole, we'd find that way in somehow, you know, so it's, uh, that's a very, <laughs> it's interesting. That's a very different perspective on plastic as a resource. Most of the time people will consider plastic to be um part of the packaging and simply a way to transport food, the object, whatever it might be from point A to point B. Possibly there'll be something that's manufactured from plastic. Um, you know, a, a water bottle, drink bottle, for example, might be manufactured from plastic. But beyond that, we don't tend to think about plastic as a resource that might actually um, have its own, have its own market to it. And, and, you, you talk about an underground market that would almost ensure that plastic remains a part of the economy um, and a part of the day-to-day -day life in South Africa. Why, why is plastic such a resource? What gives it that power, I suppose, um, to remain dominant in, in the country and in the market, even when there's say for example in an ideal world there's legislation and then there's total removal of plastic as much as possible um, from the global marketplace um i don't think that it's i don't think that that's even anything to do with plastic i think that's generally just um how i see 
our, our nation um, and that they just won't comply. Don't comply and won't comply. And, um, and that also, again, boils down to governance. It boils down to enforcement. You know, so, um, you know, I, don't, I personally don't see plastic as the enemy. I see it as a teacher. Because, um, you know, the enemy actually is human behavior around plastic. It's not, it's not the plastic itself. Plastic doesn't throw itself around. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's us. <laughs> We've got to be more accountable with what we do um, and our behavior towards how we, how we purchase, how we, how we look at things when we shop in supermarkets. And that takes a certain level of, of consciousness. Now, there's too much unconscious, unconscious consumerism. And, um, you know, convenience is just, there's just too much of that. And then obviously people not thinking further than what happens to this once it leaves my hands. You know, we've got people that say, well, I'm a responsible citizen. I throw my waste away. Now, <laughs> if I've got so much rubbish coming at me, then I must be away permanently. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 well, I must be away. <laughs> and, and and where does it go when it is away? Yeah. Uh, what what away. does the away look like? Yeah, if it doesn't leave this planet, and it's going to be. I actually had a joke uh, with my daughter the other day, and um, we were talking about things being biodegradable. And uh, you know, it was just like this while we were walking, and she said. No, you know, because I, I, everywhere I go, I'm just, just look at this rubbish, look at this rubbish everywhere. Everywhere we go, there's some rubbish lying somewhere. And she says, yeah, mom, it's biodegradable. It's only going to be about 400 or 500 years and it will be gone. <laughs> you, know, it's like, you know, that's the reality. So we sold this concept of biodegradable, but people don't realize like how many lifetimes that actually means. You know, it's like... It's a, it's a very ignorant, um, sort of shallow thinking. Uh, you know, people aren't actually going really deep into their thoughts of their own mind or following just any kind of a, a trail as to, you know, where things end up once they leave us. Do you think that is, uh, to some extent, education? Like it, it, one of the things that uh, a lot of young people in Australia struggle to join the dots with is where the food on the supermarket shelf comes from so for example somebody will see a carrot and of course a carrot in the supermarket has the dirt washed away and the the green leafy part off the top removed and it is just the orange carrot body of mm -hmm. the carrot and there's a disconnect in thinking between that carrot has been planted in a field somewhere many hundreds of kilometers away and has then been processed in in some sense of the word and then introduced into the supermarket do you think it's a similar sort of a thing with plastic where people don't and, and and waste it more generally where people just don't have that connection necessarily to yes absolutely you know and, and I, uh, actually mentioned this to um the little girl that stayed over here with us last night who and i went off um together this morning and i said well you know, there was a there was a burst pipe, and I was like, "Now where is all this coming from, and what is it?" <laughs> you know, because that's just automatically where my ma my mind takes me. And I was like, "Oh, it's sewage. It's going straight down through the river." And she's like, "Really? Does all of that stuff go down to the river?" And I said, "Yep, it's running down the stormwater drains, same as that piece of plastic and that piece of plastic and that piece of plastic. It's all going down into the river." And she said. Oh, Wow, no wonder our rivers are in such a mess. You know, so it's, and it's, you know, this is not, not, um, not a stupid child. She's a, a, a clever child. She got it instantly as I, as I mentioned it to her. But most people just don't, well, I mean, in the educational system, there is definitely a gap. There's definitely a gap, you know, that where people don't understand that, Especially here in a like a suburban area, our, our rubbish that's on the streets here because we don't have enough waste bins on the streets. There's there's a lot of litter just in in the roads and on the sidewalks, and all of that ends up in our rivers, and that's from us. 
but we like to just go it's it's upstream upstream's fault and it's not it's us as well nobody's innocent and at the end of the day i suppose we're all upstream from the ocean so um you know and there's no exclusions there <laughs> taryn i love that message we are all upstream from the ocean uh, because we absolutely are and anything and everything that we throw into the environment will eventually make its way to the ocean. Now, you're on a mission to clean up the Hinnups River, but also promote environmental awareness and reduce pollution more broadly than just your little area. You've been quite busy setting up uh, the initiative that you run, and you've got a number of people now involved with the work that you do. How is that coming along? What are you up to now? So, you know, what we've done, um, you know, obviously just trying to be as uh, resourceful as we can. I mean, this project of mine started really grassroots. Um, my daughter said to me she wanted to do a river cleanup. And I, as a mother, just organized one. I had no intention whatsoever of starting an NPO. It was, it was, I was going to do a once-off cleanup for my daughter and that was going to be me done. <laughs> and um, anyway, that obviously changed. Um, because we, we're going on year three now and, um, and growing and obviously making a bigger and bigger footprint the, the further we go. But um, having just learned so much from being so hands-on, you know, having seen the problems just with my own eyes, you know, it gives you a whole different perspective of why things are the way they are. Um, so, I mean, I don't come from an environmental background. I don't come from a water background. I literally just was a mom. Well, I am a mom. <laughs> but, um, you know, trying to, to do something that my daughter asked me to do. And, uh, and it's grown since then. So it's been a very interesting um, way to do things. And obviously just throwing myself into the deep end um, because three weeks after we started here, we had the floods of 2019. And that sort of kept, well, it, I was right in the middle of it because I was very hands-on. And, um, you know, then we started having like whole communities and all their stuff wash into the rivers. We started just like piecing the things together and understanding the whole problem from a much, much greater perspective, you know, and um, yeah, <laughs> just trying to now through that awareness, which has been brought to to my attention, and now try and um, you know convince everybody else in my town, <laughs> guys, we need to do something um, because because I've seen it, you know, with, and I think what's nice is. Um, you know, that we've been quite well received in terms of volunteers, people that want to come and give their time and help us clean up the river, um, you know, just out of the goodness of their hearts. But in the process, we've also, we've built a, a trap, um, a litter catchment system, which is a multi-phase system. And uh, the first one is to catch big, trees and things like that because obviously there is a lot of soil erosion that's happening there's a lot of sand mining upstream as well um so trees do fall in massive massive trees <clears throat> and then obviously that creates blockages further down and then more and more plastic that just comes through and sits on the trees and and so on so the first part catches trees and plastic the second part also catches trees and then the final one catches uh, all the smaller particles you know your, your chip packets and chocolate wrappers and nappies 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 <laughs> um, all those types of things um, so that was just one concept but from that place alone um, it's just one area on, on the on the Henops, which is actually right at the beginning of the Henops itself, um, when it becomes the Henops. From there, in the six months that this catchment system had, was, was operating, we removed over 10,000 bags of waste from there. Wow. So it's, <laughs> it's huge. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's actually crazy. I mean, the amount of rubbish that's coming down. Okay, look, it was. Um, rain season as well, 
but um, you know, and obviously the, everything is just much, much more in the rain season. But um, the last floods actually took the, the, the catchment system and flattened it. Um, it was it was quite astronomical flooding that we had this year. What sort of a population size does that catchment service? Is it thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people? to generate that sort of a, a waste load in the river? Oh, gosh. Um, look, there's quite, uh, well, look, that, I mean, that's not even all of it. You know how much, if, if I had to explain to you how much it actually went past the system, because, the, because of the swirling motion of the water, you know, some of it goes under, some of it goes over, the entire river beyond was still polluted like crazy. Um, you definitely won't, um, catch everything. So we need to work on putting more and more of these traps in place so that we can obviously remove more. But it was a pilot a pilot test. Um, the problem is, um, I, I don't know the, the, the numbers because, like I said, a lot of it is informals. So it's very difficult to say. But, I mean, it is it's a huge amount of people. Tembisa is a massive. It's really very, very big and very, very condensed. What's the condition of the river downstream from you? Have you been down that end? And is there a noticeable improvement after the work that you've done? I actually spent some time downstream about two weeks back. And it was really just so nice to, to spend time there. Obviously, the water quality is not the same, but you can definitely, definitely see the work that we've done upstream is... Uh, it, it's reflected in the the way it looks downstream for sure. It's much, much, much less litter, and um, yeah, there's it's, it's evident. You can you can literally see it with your own eyes, but it's not like it is here. Exactly, how much waste do you see in your part of the river, and how much have you managed to collect over the time that you've been working there? In the in the time that we've been operational. We've removed over uh, 1.8 million kilograms of of waste from from this small area that we're working in Centuria. Wow, that's that is an enormous amount of waste. And how many people? <laughs> how many people on your team that you work with that sort of got that out? We we are, we are 13 people, and we don't work all the time. Um, we work sort of as funds are available. So at this stage, um, we work about three days a week and then obviously our volunteer days which happen once a month have you noticed over the time that you've been doing it that you are collecting more waste or is there less waste or does it sort of remain the same i'm thinking in terms of like a, an input coming down the river so i did notice a big difference with um the lockdown the hard lockdown. Um, when the rains came after that, there was definitely more. Um, and I think that's obviously just because there were more people at home and not at work. Um, so more generated waste um, at the, uh, you know, in, in the townships. So, um, so there was definitely, I did, uh, you know, a noticeable difference. Um, but other than that, it's fairly constant. Taryn has a great idea for a solution to waste in the Hinnops River and more broadly. That involves commoditizing pollution, commoditizing waste, so it has a value, rather than it just being something of little significance that bears no importance to people. So, you know, I think the ultimate idea is here to give waste value. As soon as there's a value to it, you won't find it lying around anymore. How do you see that unfolding? How do you see that working in South Africa um, and in particular in your context? So that's where I think the, um, the transition could come in from um, landfill sites um, and things just being uh, discarded. If, um, if we could come up with some kind of a concept or way that people could get money in. And I'm not talking about just for recycling, 
because there's a lot of the stuff that comes out of our river, which is beyond recycling. Um, it's, it's just too toxic, too broken down, or, or so on, you know. So I think the waste to energy thing should really be driven quite, quite hard. Um, it just, just, we just need enough buy-in, you know. Um, the well, South Africa in particular, we always have load shedding. We've got huge issues with power. So it, it, it actually would close a gap that we have, a massive gap, an enormous gap. We need the buy-in of um, the government you know, to, to do waste to energy and to drive that um, to create jobs for people who are um, living beyond, um, you know, a life of poverty. And, um, you know, it's creating that resource or way for them to to actually generate an income through picking up and um, exchanging whatever waste is lying around wherever they can find it. And uh, you can also even start little micro businesses, you know, where people could in the, in the townships have a, a, a point or a source where they could go and drop off their recyclables, get paid on the spot, and uh, all their plastic and their waste get paid on the spot, and um, and then you buy that person's waste from him, which is already sorted and all sorts. So there, you know there are ways that we could work around this. It's just a case of funding it, obviously, <laughs> and um, and applying it. One of the proposals that you suggested there is waste to energy. Waste to energy is a contentious issue for many people. Uh, some of that is to do with a perhaps a lack of understanding around the technology and what is actually occurring when waste is transferred into energy. Aside from that discussion, do you think that in South Africa there would be sufficient political, social, and economic capability to input something like waste energy into the market and have it actually be successful? Um, I don't see why not. Um, you know, I think it's, especially if it's um, something that can be self-driven, you know, so like the autonomy um, factor that you spoke about, for a lot of South Africans, uh, and this is now, if I look just into the informal recycling industry, those people like to be free. They don't like the system. They don't work for the system. They don't work with the system. They like their freedom and they like to come and go without the rules, without the regulations. And they do, you know, so if there was something that was, you know, creating, um, a, a chance for more income for these people that are already going through our waste and already going through, um, you know, all the all the steps um, in order just to get some recycling done in our country. Um, I definitely think that there would be a drive from that side. Um, the buy-in really needs to come from our government. Um, and that's... I suppose there's been there's been some um, some some commitments made um, in line with the climate action. Um, so there is definitely an awareness which is growing within our municipalities, and more and more municipalities are sort of coming on board um, slowly, slowly. But um, you know being more consciously aware of, of what's going on and greening the cities and, you know, putting in the necessary action behind, um, you know, sustainably going forward. Because I think everyone's kind of, I think everyone's just kind of waking up at the same time, which is great. <laughs> um, you know, if I think about like a hundred years ago, none of us knew what, we would, what, what kind of a mess we'd be sitting with now, you know, a hundred years later. So we all sort of like realizing, oh boy, you know, 
this is trouble, you know, and now we're starting to think ahead, which is great. Um, so I think from, from that aspect, at least there is an interest from, from the government. Uh, the private sector, definitely. From, from the private sector side, it's just a case of like who to align with, how to go about it, um, you know, because I don't think that this is something that anyone can really do alone. You, you really join climate change with pollution, with all of the environmental matters together. For you, is it all encompassing or do you have compartments in your mind that you, know, you can work on one, can work on the other? and they're a little bit separate. No, it's all the same. For me, it's all the same. Um, and the bottom line is water. <laughs> and our water is the, <laughs> the thing that we've disconnected from the most, um, which I see, I also see water is very differently. Um, you know, mine for me has been a bit of a spiritual journey and it's been reconnecting with the water within myself. So... Uh, what the river reflects to me is just a disconnection to ourselves. And it's obviously a massive amount of pain and a broken system. But, um, you know, the, the water that's running through our bodies also needs to be looked after and nurtured. And uh, it's what we're putting back out. Um, so it's, it's, for me, it's, it's, it's all the same. And it all has to do with water and has to do with our, our connection to ourselves as human beings made up of water. Some people might argue that on the individual level, uh, it is not the responsibility of the individual to solve the big problems of the world. And indeed, that is up to governments and international panels to solve those problems. What are your thoughts on that? People still want to blame the government for all the, the rubbish. And I'm sorry... <laughs> you know that's a cop-out that's just you know you're not taking responsibility for your own purchases that's you being a responsible citizen and throwing your rubbish away because i pay my rent in taxes and you know littering is job creation and it's like this outdated mentality which which people um you know it, it takes them away it takes them out of the equation completely and you know that's not mine you know, oh, I didn't do that. It's not my rubbish. I'm not going to pick it up. You know, that, <laughs> somebody else is there. And, um, you know, as soon as you remove yourself so, so much from the truth or just from even just looking after yourself and, and, and your own environment, your immediate um, suburb, you know, where you might live. Um, we can't just, you know, because like I said, again, it's a numbers game. can't just wait for the municipality to come and clean up after us. I mean, that's not why we pay our rates and taxes, surely? Isn't that for, <laughs> to cover other things that are important for the running of our cities and stuff like that? They're not here just to sweep up and clean up after us. That's ridiculous. So what's the solution? How do we get people interested in these environmental matters? How do we get people to be more self-aware and responsible? And how do we make a change that will bring everybody along on the journey, not just a select few? We have to make it easy. I was traveling in Brussels recently. And um, I mean, what I found most interesting was that there was just waste separation, standard norm, wherever you go. Standard norm. It's like you will not, and people do it they, because it's available to them. So again, in South Africa, we are faced with a little bit of a challenge because firstly, those dustbins would probably be stolen. But, you know, in shopping centers, in office blocks and, you know, places like that, there's definitely room for, for more waste separation. We're still very behind in terms of, you know, um, what to do with our waste. And a lot of people don't see the value in the separation. They see it as a, a burden you know, just another job, um, you know, but once you realize, um, once you realize the importance and the value thereof, it's very hard to change back. As we all know, COVID-19 has been an issue that we have been facing globally for the last two and a half years now. 
But quite interestingly, governments and communities around the world acted very quickly in response to that. Should people be acting with similar haste with regard to plastic pollution, given, as you say, we don't have any more time, there's no more time to waste, we must act now? You know, the waste crisis um, was addressed with the same matter of urgency as COVID-19. We fixed this and turned this problem around in no time. And we've seen it. Everyone across the globe has seen what um, that kind of sense of urgency has, um, you know, and, and can actually be implemented through the media, through well, just networking with each other, with countries, you know, um, working together with the same end goal. That actually takes me to the UN um, Plastic Pollution Treaty proposal that was discussed in Nairobi and Kenya uh, and has essentially a four to five year trajectory in terms of developing something useful out of that. In your opinion, is that fast enough or do we need to be acting faster and second part of that question do you believe that that treaty is going to actually be effective in achieving anything or is it going to be another blunt instrument toothless tiger (sighs) well um I'm happy with any action that takes place as a result of any agreements all over the globe. Um, personally, it all should have started long ago. Um, we are behind and we need to act with, with great haste, actually, because we literally don't have time. We are we're poisoning ourselves and the bulk of us can't even see it. So, um, you know, I think that, yeah, I'm in support of all action, (laughs) all action that's being taken, because any action that is being taken is from the recognition that we're actually running out of time. So, um, five years, I think it's optimistic, (laughs) Um, because, um, well, I mean, ultimately it should happen as quick as possible. I mean, I really, really realize that we don't have time. Um, but, um, you know, five years is a great start. Um, I don't I don't think it's going to be, I mean, this, I don't know, I'd like, I'd like to see it. I'd, I'd love to see it, of course. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I have my reservations because um, just a general apathy. Apathy of the human race. And that's that's the biggest problem here is too many people talking and not enough people doing. And, uh, you know, this has reached the point where we actually can't talk about it anymore. Do you think with other things that are going on in the world at the moment, um, there's food shortages, there's extreme weather events, there's conflict, Do you think the plastic pollution and the environment deserve to be getting as much recognition? Are they, is that as an important issue as those other issues? Or does it take a bit of a backseat? It does take a backseat, but it shouldn't. You know, it's almost as if people are not realizing the importance of the very ground that we walk upon, the very water that sustains all life on the planet. And, um, you know, there's a lot of distractions which, you know, people like to jump onto the next drama story and and uh, people get caught up in the drama of daily living and um, and in things that they can actually do nothing about. Paying attention to something which you actually can manage and control and actually where you can make a difference and where you can actually 
um, you know, bring about a better future through your everyday actions. Except we are thriving on other people's dramas and um, and it's things that are spiraling out of control, which are just not helping the situation at all. And that brings me to my next question. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? What is the future of plastic pollution and pollution cleanups in the Henops River? Um, well, look, things are constantly, constantly changing. And um, I've realized that, especially when you're work, working with water, that uh, you need to be ready for change at any given moment because um, anything can happen. <laughs> um, so whilst trying to remain fluid and um, going with the flow, there obviously needs to be a certain amount of structure put in place and um, preventative measures so that we don't have to deal with all that we have been dealing with from a reactive point of view and we'd like to start being more proactive. So ideally to get in more litter catchment systems so that um, you know less waste actually goes downstream, we can stop it um, above. But also, you know, we need to we need to look at projects and obviously this all at the end of the day it all boils down to money. You know, we can do much more with more money. But I've been thinking of doing um, vegetable gardens where people in um, you know, areas like Latimbisa, where there is extreme poverty, can actually come and exchange their organic waste for food that's grown in the garden um, so that we you know, start a new type of currency where your waste isn't wasted. So your, that waste isn't going into the riverbanks and it isn't rotting and festering and coming down into the river so to tackle that element of um, pollution and then also having um, managed responsible recycling points where people can give their waste in and then you know have like a, a again a different currency so not necessarily money but maybe somebody needs food for their children for that night or you know so working with a small scale everyday person that's going to be walking and see that see the, the the value of that plastic bottle that's lying on the road or something you know and then they can exchange it out for clothing or you know basic toiletries um basic food things you know items of food and that type of thing so so starting a whole different approach in terms of how we um manage the, the the conditions that that certain people are living in you know because it is that you need that one that's going to pick up and I mean these people are walking up and down anyway so instead of dumping their bag of waste at the the river at the bridge you know separating it and saying well I can get money for this and I can get money for this and I get a packet of tomatoes for this so <laughs> so then you know, you start to, um, changing the way that people think about what they're doing with their waste. So that obviously is, I mean, it's a massive undertaking, but you can only really start with the first step. Um, that would be job creation. So you'd automatically be starting to alleviate the poverty in those areas and hopefully um, create a replicable model, you know, where more and more people can do the same thing um in in those areas because there's there's a definite need um you know there's there's a lot of um informal street side trading you know and those people are they're just discarding whatever's not sellable anymore into the stormwater drains and going obviously into the river and rotting whereas if those people could bring their their not sellable waste food waste back to the recycling or the composting gardens, we could turn it into compost and they could go and sell the tomatoes that they got from us again, you know. So it could be quite a, um, you know, a circular thing um, to implement. Um, but besides that, you know, we also want to look at doing remediation, um, bringing in plants, plants um, to extract the heavy metals from the water, to extract the, the nutrients, the excess nutrients that's coming in from industry and from agricultural runoff, that type of thing. So look at actual 
remediation of the water, um, constructing wetlands and that type of thing, um, as well as bioremediation, which, you know, I'm, I'm willing to try it all. <laughs> um, it's just a case of, um, you know, funding really. Um, and we've managed to do everything that we've done and, and, and get quite a large footprint uh, with very little. You know, um, but it's also it's been me sacrificing three years of my life without a salary, you know, just through just hard work and dedication, which um, I think it's because uh, I'm, I'm quite blessed in that, um, you know, my living expenses are relatively low. So I have been able to. Um, and that's, I think, the setback with most people. And that's why um, people end up stopping their environmental championing because they, they don't get paid. Luckily, I have a, a, a hard time sleeping. I work, I'll work from one o'clock in the morning until one o'clock in the morning and then have a couple of hours and then wake up and go again. That's incredible. And to be able to achieve what you're achieving and for you to have such clear goals about where you want to go in the next, you know, in the next few years, it's, it's great and I hope that you can keep the energy up and keep rolling on and continue to do amazing things for the planet. Taryn, it has been an absolute delight to speak with you today and hear about what you are doing in the Hennep's River and what you're doing to help combat plastic and waste pollution on a global scale. Thank you again for speaking with me on the Plasticology Project podcast. And I look forward to talking with you again and hearing an update of what's been happening. Best of luck for the upcoming river cleanups. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Plasticology Project podcast. It's been great having you along. If you'd like more information, please see the show notes. Alternatively, head to www.plasticology.com pjharvey.com. The Plasticology Project podcast receives no financial support. If you would like to support the Plasticology Project podcast or any of the other Plasticology Project initiatives, please follow the link on the website. This has been another episode of the Plasticology Project podcast. Thanks for listening.